Good morning. Uh, The reading of scripture today comes from the book of James, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. You can join me in your bulletins or in your Bibles. My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in, You pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, You, sit here in this good place. You may say to the poor man, You, stand over there, sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my brother, brother, beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promise to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as violator, violators. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but not, but, but if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a violator of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord, and it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Good morning. That's the third time y'all have said good morning. You're doing good every time. All right, we're in our third week of the study of the book of James. And let me ask you something. If you weren't here in person or listening online over the last two weeks, you need to go back and listen to those two sermons. Um, Dodd Drake preached two weeks ago, Jake Henry last week. I mean, you really need to do this if you didn't hear them, okay? You really need to do this. And you can go to hopechapelgreensboro.org, their website, click on worship, then sermons, click on the icon for the sermon series. Did I say you needed to listen to them? All right. You're not going to get better teaching than that, I don't think. In the first week, Dodd was with us. He told us that the book of James was written to Jewish believers who had been dispersed around the Middle East. And he helped us understand the big picture of what the book of James is all about. And that is that God uses trials and difficulties to bring us to joy. Which really sounds odd. But those trials and difficulties surface doubt. They conform us more to the image of Jesus And he told us that the joy follows through and not despite of the grief, the sorrow, and the problems that those trials and difficulties bring. Don't we so often think that when things get hard, it's because God's not blessing us rather than actually blessing us. Last week, Jake taught us about the lenses through which we filter everything we think about. He told us about hearing and doing. He told us about the sitting actions and the doing actions of one who follows Jesus. And those sitting actions are hearing, receiving, and looking into. 
and how we so often move into the doing actions without the initial focus on the sitting actions, and how we all have anxiety about how well we perform as followers of Jesus because we focus all on the doing and not on the sitting. He concluded by noting that pure religion is to visit the vulnerable, to love, and be present with people. I I don't know if you need to hear that sermon, but I really need to hear that sermon, okay? I'm a list checker, you know. I'm a guy who doesn't think I've done anything until I've checked off my list. So being is really important for me. And I'm going to tell you that this passage today, in fact, the whole book of James makes me very uncomfortable. I agree with Dodd that this was written to Jewish believers dispersed in the Middle East, but I would add that it was most certainly written to believing communities that were largely made up of poor people, perhaps very poor people. And that shouldn't really surprise us. There would not have been much of a middle class in that day. You were either very rich or you were poor or very poor. There wasn't really much of a middle class. And so we need to think about these lenses, which Jake mentioned last week. What lenses do we look at this passage with? Do we, almost all middle class or upper middle middle class, think that this was written to us as the poor versus those people who are rich above us? Or do we, almost all middle class or upper middle class, think this was written to the poor in the church versus us in the middle class above them? And we're going to have to think about those lenses as we go through this. And I think we're going to see two things. There are many more you could see, but we're going to see two things. We are, in fact, both all, both rich and poor. And we should cultivate a lifestyle of justice and equity, especially toward the poor. So let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult text for those of us in the Western church um, who have lots. And so we pray that you would guide us, you would minister to us, you would teach us. Let my words be those which would edify your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the text starts today by saying, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Jesus Lord, uh, sorry, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, stand back there at our feet. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Having reminded us in chapter 2 to live by and do the law of liberty and to visit the vulnerable, vulnerable, James now warns these believers to not show favoritism. And truly, this first verse is a summary of the entire passage. We could, in fact, just stop right now and say, don't show favoritism, especially to the rich, and go enjoy our day. But then he goes on to talk about some gathering of the believers. The word translated assembly in the New American Standard and meeting in the NIV is actually the word synagogue. It's actually the meeting place. So that begs the question, what type of meeting is this? Most commentators think that it was a worship meeting that they were all coming together for worship and the uh, either true story or perhaps just a, a, a fictional story to tell the point was that this finely dressed man is led to the seat of honor, perhaps to the front seat of the, the, the congregation and the poorly shod man is to sit in the back. But some commentators think that this is actually a judicial assembly or meeting of the people of God. 
Note that the word ecclesia or church is actually not used in this passage. Note in verse 4 that they're warned that they are becoming judges with evil motives. Notice later in verse 6 that the rich dragged the poor into court. All this raises the possibility that this wasn't a worship assembly, but a judicial assembly or decision-making meeting of the church community. And they would have had those types of meetings. We don't tend to do that in our church culture today, although we have on occasion. And this latter understanding fits with the numerous Old Testament warnings against showing partiality to the rich and wicked in the courtroom. And all of these Jewish believers would have been well acquainted with all that. So whether in worship meetings or other more judicial proceedings, the members of the church then and now are not to show partiality. James gives three reasons why the church should not favor the rich over the poor. First, God chooses the poor. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Well, so I don't know about you, uh, but this statement makes me pause a little bit because I'm not poor. I ain't even close to poor. Could this mean that I'm not chosen? The statement to James, though, shouldn't surprise us. It's the consistent uh, with, it is consistent with teaching throughout the Bible where God comes and Jesus comes not to save the rich, but the poor, not to save the healthy, but the sick. And we'll return to that in a few minutes. The second reason that the church should not favor the rich is that it's the rich who drag the poor into court. Verses six and seven, be you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Now, as we read this, it's easy for us to think of situations in which the rich have truly dragged the poor into court. Think about property owners going to court to evict poor people from their homes. We hear of owners of large companies suing smaller companies. But again, I have to pause. Most of you know I'm a physician. I'm a business owner. Sometimes people don't pay their bills. What do I do with that? Do they not pay their bills because they can't? Or do they not pay their bills because they won't? Am I supposed to discern that? Do I take them to court? Do I turn them over to collections agencies? What do I do with this? I don't have a complete answer to that if you want to know the truth. The third reason that the church should not, fa- should not favor the rich is in order to fulfill the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, several times in James, including last week, we see references to this perfect law, the royal law, the law of liberty. So let's unpack that just for a second. Let's understand what it means. Last week, Jake said it was the word of God, and that's true. More specifically, I think for James, though, we see in this statement in verse 8, that the law of liberty comes from the words of Jesus in Mark 12 and in similar passages. Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there is, no greater, there is no commandment greater than these. 
So the law of liberty, the perfect law, the royal law, which sums up all of the law in Scripture, is to love God first and foremost and love your neighbor as yourself. So preferring the rich to the poor is to break the law of liberty. So those are the three reasons that he tells us to not favor the rich over the poor. I do want to, before moving on to our applications, though, point out verses 9 through 11. It's kind of this little excursus or parenthesis in the middle of the chapter. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. To break one law is to be guilty of breaking the whole law. Now, when you first read it, that that does seem a little unfair, doesn't it? I mean, really? If I break one point of the law, I'm guilty of breaking them all? So you're telling me that showing partiality is as bad as adultery and murder? I mean, you know, isn't nine out of ten pretty good? I mean, can we grade on a curve? But that is exactly what James is is saying. First, we need to remember the holiness of God. In a way, there is no small sin in the eyes of God. All sin, small or large, is an affront to God's holiness and results in judgment. And a punishment has to be paid. And secondly, we need to remember those lenses that Jake was talking about. In the Western world, it's all about doing and grading our doing. This is no different. We know we can't keep the whole law, so we make distinctions. I'll just grade myself on this part of the law, and I'll just kind of forget this part of the law. That way I can feel good about myself. We'll come back to this in a few minutes as well. So in summary, the passage today is telling us to avoid favoritism. We should neither favor, we should favor no one, and especially not the rich. And if we break one law, we've broken the whole law. And that brings us to our two applications. First, we have to admit that we are all both rich and poor. As I said earlier, the overwhelming biblical witness is that God is concerned about the poor, the immigrant, the alien, the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable to sum it up. So why do you think this is the case? Why why do you think God came, his main concern is about these people? Well, it's largely because the rich, the dominant, the elite of a society don't really think they need God. Most of the time in church history, revival does not start among the rich and the elite. That would be us, by the way. It usually starts with the poor and the oppressed. Well, what do you do with this? Because like I just said, most of us are rich. And you might be thinking, well, maybe you're rich, Jim, but I'm not. That's probably what some of you are thinking. You may be trying to raise a family on a small salary and thinking, I don't feel so rich. You may be somebody about to go to college and thinking, I don't feel like I'm so rich as I go to college. But you need to consider other parts of the world. As was mentioned, we have David and Rachel with us today. They've lived in Chad for about 13 years. The average income per person in Chad is $740 per year. Per year. $13.42 a week. All right, family of four. Good. You get to raise the family on $64 and I can't do the math. Uh, we'll, we'll call it close to $64. Okay. And not only that, but 42% of their population live below their own poverty line. Not our poverty line. 
their party line. I think a lot of us are rich around here. We're all rich compared to many who are poor around us and around the world. And we all have an obligation to be concerned about the poor. Some of us have much more means than others, and I understand that. But it's really all of our responsibility to do, to do for others, to remember the poor, and to remember the vulnerable. So we're all really rich. But one thing we've got to remember is that we're all really pretty poor. Or we were at one point. We were all given great gifts that we neither chose nor deserved. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And you've heard me say this from this pulpit before. And I've, I've asked you this before. I'm going to ask you again because I think it's so important to how you regard your money and your possessions. How much of what you have is due to what you have done and how much it is due to what you have been given? You may say, I haven't been given. I've been not given very much, and that may be partially true. But compared to others around you in this time, in chat, or in history, you've been given a lot. And by the way, did you choose or deserve to be born in this time in history? No, that was a gift. You didn't do anything for that. Did you choose or deserve where you would be born? Nope. Nope, that was a gift. As I look out, did you choose or deserve your race? Nope. That was a gift. And for those of us who are white in America, that turns out to be a pretty big gift compared to others. Did you choose your parents? Did you choose your siblings? Did you choose your IQ? You can go on and on. You see, we have been given almost everything. We need to remember that without these gifts, we would very, very likely be poor like many others around us and in our world. So I'm going to channel Todd here for a minute and talk about a movie. All right? I don't do this very much because I see like a movie a year. All right. And some of us gathered in the basement of the, uh, in the fellowship hall last week and watched a movie called Knives Out. And to show you that I enjoy this movie, it's actually the third time I've seen this movie, and I only see two movies a year. So that's telling you something. All right. And Griffin led a great discussion about it. Basically, it's the story of a very rich writer, Harlan Thrombey, who in his later years realizes he has not done well by his spoiled children and grandchildren. And he has some illnesses. I think he's 85. So he has some illnesses. And his, his nurse is a Latin woman named Marta. It's really a great whodunit. I mean, it's really a fun whodunit. First time I watched it, I was just amazed. I missed every message. Thank goodness Griffin made us pause and think about it. I missed every message in it because it's such a great whodunit. All right? More importantly, though, it's a story of entitlement, pride, greed, and bigotry. Hard to believe I missed that, isn't it? He has given all his children and grandchildren great gifts in their lives, but they think they've all pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And they've only gotten what they deserved. And they tell Marta how important she is to them, but they don't know if she is from Paraguay, Uruguay, or Ecuador. In the movie, she's literally said to be from all three countries. And Marta, who lives in a small apartment with her mother and sister, is thankful for what she has and is kind and generous in her service to others. It's truly got a great ending. I won't spoil it for you. But we can summarize the verse today. I told the people last week when we were together, you were going to hear this this week. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. That's the punchline of the movie. 
Now, I'm not doubting that many of you who have a lot, including myself, have worked very hard in our lives. I think I have worked very hard. And we have great riches as well. Two things are true. There are others in our community and our world who have worked just as hard or harder and have much less to show for it. And second, it can all go away in a season. Think about the Great Depression. Think about the Great Recession. And in fact, as Paul told Timothy, it all goes away when we die. All those riches, all that money, all those things that we work so hard to obtain, they will not be ours anymore. What will we have then? So we who were born with nothing and were freely giving so much and are now rich should remember that without all those gifts, we would actually still be poor. So we're both rich and poor. And unlike the Trombley family, we should live lives characterized by humility, generosity, and mercy as we recognize that. My second application follows from this. We should cultivate a lifestyle of justice and equity, especially toward the poor. Now, this is really a critical central issue for believers. This is not a peripheral issue. Because not just in the book of James, as I've said, but repeatedly in Scripture, the main measure of good works, those are works that follow from true faith, the main measure of good works, the main action, the main doing that identifies people as truly being followers of God, whether that was in the period of the Old Testament with the Hebrews or since Christ with Christians, the main doing that it defines people as being followers of God is how they treat immigrants, aliens, and the poor. I think that those of us who've been brought up in the evangelical church in the 20th and 21st century have largely missed this. Remember I said that we kind of grade our sins. And the evangelical church has largely graded itself on what we might call personal holiness. Do you cuss and curse? Do you drink alcohol? Do you have sexual sin? Now, look, those issues of personal holiness are important. Don't get me wrong. They are important. But the weight of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not an emphasis on personal holiness. And it is an emphasis on loving others as yourself, on caring for the poor, the immigrant, the alien, and the vulnerable. Now, I could have easily spent our whole time this morning outlining dozens of passages that emphasize this need to care for the vulnerable. But what troubles me about this today is this is not what we hear from much of the evangelical church. We need to realize that the world and God is watching us and all those who call on the name of Jesus and wondering, how are you regarding and treating the poor and the vulnerable? I'm comfortable with what we've begun to do here at Hope Chapel to try to serve the poor, but I'm very uncomfortable when I see the name of Jesus or God or Christian combined with certain political ideas that devalue and demean immigrants, aliens, and the poor. And listen, as Daniel would often say, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God is judging you based on your works. What I'm saying is that your works are a reflection of your heart. And according to the Bible, the number one thing by which God, and for that matter, the world is judging our hearts by, as followers of Jesus, is looking at how we regard, treat, and serve the poor and vulnerable. So this lifestyle of justice and equity is not a peripheral issue. It's not something on the side. It's central. It's a critical central issue of how we live our lives. So what would this look like? 
to have a lifestyle of justice and equity? I don't have a lot of great answers. Mainly because it's all up to each of us individually and as a community. Last week, Jack, Jack, oh, sorry, Jake, sorry about that. Jake, I just named your whole family, I think. That's right. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> Last week, Jake challenged us to practice the ministry of presence with the poor. Or he, he actually challenged us to practice the presence of the, oh, practice the ministry of presence and not only with the poor, but also with the poor. So I think the first thing we can do is move toward them. And in the United States, with our various neighborhoods and divisions based on economic, social, and racial class, it's rather easy to avoid the poor. Until we see them on the street. Then we try not to look at them, try to avoid them, make certain we don't interact with them. And again, I think what we do here at Hope Chapel, inviting those with needs to come and be served a meal and to take home some food is a good model of moving toward the poor and practicing presence with the poor. I've contributed monthly to supporting one child or another in poverty somewhere in the world for the last 47 years, since I was 18. I've written some letters to those children over the years, but not as much as I should have, but some. And maybe that's a little bit moving toward and practicing presence. But we can all doubtless do more. And I don't know what that will look like for each of us. And I'm not sure what it will look like to continue to do that as a church community, but we need to be thinking about it. Secondly, a lifestyle of justice and equity means we have an uninsulting presence with the poor. That is an uninsulting ministry not to, but with the poor. Again, I think we do that in our out-of-the-garden work. But how often are government-based or church-based social programs and efforts devised and decided upon with no involvement of the people whom they seek to serve? So as we contemplate how to serve those around us who are vulnerable— those different from us, we need to sit and listen. We need to sit and listen to their experiences and their needs. We did some of that at Cone Health during the racial things last year. It was very hard. Very hard just to sit and listen to other people's, other human beings' experience in our culture. I need to not think that I know what is best or that we know what is best or that we even understand people in their situation, because there's a high likelihood that we don't. And thirdly, I would invite you to think, how does this apply outside of the church? Yes, we're called to, be, to have a lifestyle of justice and equity in our individual lives and in our church community, but we're also called to that in all that we do. How will it look? I've already said, how will it look in my business? I've struggled with this for a long time. And I'm not going to give you any answers, and I'm not going to judge your answers now or in the future. I'm only going to ask you that you ask the question, how will it look for you? Consider what it will look like in your family, your workplace, and your free time to live a lifestyle of justice and equity. So as usual here at Hope Chapel, I think we have covered a lot of ground. As I said earlier, the book of James always makes me uncomfortable and should make nearly all of us uncomfortable. Not many of us regard trials and tribulations with joy. Hearing but not doing, when doing is the dominant theme of our culture, the rich and dominant versus the poor and vulnerable, and we're only through a chapter and a half. Whew. But despite that discomfort, one of the things that happened last week when Jake preached was I felt my shoulders relax 
And I felt this anxiety that I so often have go away. The important thing he said is being and not doing. And what a relief that was for a day or two. Until I put my old lenses back on. And although you may think that I have put a big burden on doing for you by having you think about this lifestyle and justice and equity, that was not my intention. Because I hope and pray that you have actually felt some anxiety and pressure lift off of you today as you recall that all that you have, whether it's forgiveness of sins or the money that you have or the car that you drive, all of this is a gift of God. Your task is to trust God to continue to care for you And give you all that you need, just as he always has done. And your task is to respond with humility, generosity, and mercy to those around us and throughout the world. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen.